UEG Talks, Gastroenterology to Go. Welcome to our GI podcast. Listen for fresh insights and perspectives in science, education, and professional development. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Best of UEG Talks from UEG Week. I am Maximilian Chinagel, Education Editor here and today the host of UEG Talks. I'm very excited to announce that Julia Meile, the chair of the UEG Scientific Committee, has joined me today in co-hosting this very special episode. Welcome, Julia. Thanks a million for welcoming me. I'm really looking forward to a wonderful podcast, and I'm not going to spoil whom we are talking to. Great, Julia. Thank you so much. So, Julia, how did you personally like the 2023 UEG week? Well, I mean, to be frank, I was impressed by the enormous attendance, not only in the postgraduate course with nearly 5,000 people, um, but also with the attendance in the live endoscopy on Tuesday. It was really well received. I enjoyed networking a lot. And I really enjoyed our new concept for the moderated poster sessions. I think that can really bring back science to the week. And I like the silent rooms and the discussion I saw at the poster area. And I hope that we can actually increase the number of moderated poster sessions next year to be really attractive science meeting. Thank you, Julia. That's really great to hear. But today we are covering the highlights and the best the liver field has to offer during the UEG Week 2023 conference in Copenhagen. Whether you're a seasoned hepatologist or intrigued by the intricacies of liver health, this episode promises to be an enlightening journey through the latest and greatest advancements in this field. So, without further ado, let's get right into the world of liver science and explore the valuable insights shared at this year's UEG Week. But first, I would like to ask my co-host Julia to do the honors of introducing our special guest today. Well, our special guest today is Herbert Tilk. And Herbert Tilk is not only the chairman of the Department of Gastroenterology and Hepatology at Innsbruck University, but he's also a hybrid gastroenterologist, if you want to say so. He's one of the very few persons who actually has a deep insight into the liver and liver science and is an accomplished researcher in this field. But he's also a competent researcher in the field of IBD. And that is something which you can only find very, very rarely in our gastro community. Moreover, Herbert is my predecessor as a chair of the scientific committee. And he's obviously the best person to give us feedback on the week and also on the science which we were able to present this year in the field of liver at UEG Week in Copenhagen. Herbert, I'm really glad that you joined us today. It's a great pleasure to be here. Thank you very much for inviting. How did you? enjoy the UEG week? Well, I actually, I as a chair of the committee, we had two virtual meetings. So I think it was just fantastic to see the people and to enjoy a live meeting. And I think it was a fantastic meeting. And you mentioned a few aspects. And I have to say, the scientific content was fantastic. And I mean, we speak about liver today, and I, I believe we had some great liver contributions. And it's really very, very exciting. And also the moderated poster, I had the pleasure to, to chair a few. And it was really fun because it was so different from previous meetings. And I, I agree, 
this could be the future. That's great that you're going to say that because I really felt the same and we're going to uh, try to improve on that. So what surprised you most or what was really unexpected to you? Well, I mean, it's it's always unfair to mention one because there were really uh, some fantastic contributions. But I, I have to mention one paper, which was a liver paper, of course. You're <laughs> speaking about liver and it's by, uh, by Maurice Sanguinetto from Foce in Italy, and the title was Monocyte, Monocyte Immune Metabolism in Patients with NASH, a Potential Target. And uh, it's it's exciting because they studied immunometabolism in patients with NASH, and immunometabolism is something which is so cool now because it links metabolism with immunity. And of course, NASH is a perfect disease where we see both. So they studied circulating uh, CD14 positive monocytes and investigated glycolysis, so glucose metabolism and the mitochondrial respiration in, in, in monocytes and could show an increase in both. And they could show that um, succinate dehydrogenase drives metabolism in macrophages, but more important, and I think that's the real important translational aspect, demonstrating there is a big link in NASH between metabolism and immunity when they blocked this enzyme, dehydrogenase. They normalized glycolysis and improved steatohepatitis also in mice. So I think it was a fantastic contribution in the liver field at this meeting. On a side note, so you're talking about NASH. What do you believe out of the concept not to call NASH MASH? And well, muffled. Well, it's a, it's. I mean, I, I'm of course as a, as being involved in in this type of research since decades now. We have written in 2000 a paper in the New England Journal of Medicine on pathogenesis of muffled. So um, I've seen all the changes muffled uh, to muffled and to muscled. So now it's MASLD, and of course the change from Nash to MASH. I mean, MASH sounds great. I was excited in Copenhagen because there is even, uh, there are restaurants called MASH. And, uh, and, uh, I think it's, it's, a, it's a good development because it brings in now nicely the concept of metabolism. And I think we will, uh, hopefully we will adapt now quickly to, to this new name because we cannot change names every two years because this confuses the community. So I would say, yes, it was a good change. Hopefully it's settled. So what do you believe is was the most groundbreaking paper or talk? And why do you pick this paper as groundbreaking? Well, for me, the ground paper was indeed uh, in the opening session and presented by Jörn Schattenberg, the randomized control phase three trial of resmeterome in NASH, 52 weeks data from Mest Mestro NASH. And I have to say... Uh, this is the case because we are searching now, I would say, since 20 years for an effective therapy. And uh, it is the first time, the first time that we can see in a large controlled trial that uh, a drug which seems to be safe is indeed effective in all the, let's say, primary endpoints we have defined, tried to define in the last decade, I mean, endpoints were always criticized because no drug could achieve the endpoints. But now, the first time we have a drug which is able and which could achieve the endpoints. So I think this is so important because I really believe this could become a game changer in the field of hepatology. 
and a great starting point. I mean, of course, we can always say lose weight and lose weight and that's it. And then you have a therapy for NASH and, and, and muscle. And that's fine. That's an important concept. But we also know we fail repeatedly and we need drugs. And this is maybe even historically because it looks like it's a new therapy. Of course, need more data, needs, needs to be approved, whatever, whatever. But I think... It was. Uh, it, it is an, a very important clinical study in the field of gastroenterology, hepatology, in the field of hepatology. Herbert, may I ask you a question which you might not be able to answer, which I tried to research. Do you have any clue about the costs, like monthly or annual costs of treatment with resmetirom? I have no idea. But... Um, I'm, I, I believe it will not be more expensive than all the drugs we have started now, which are effective in losing weight. So um, hopefully at this price level or maybe cheaper, I don't know. But uh, anyway. I, I was just asking because of um, opetycholic acid, yeah. which was strikingly expensive. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I believe it needs to be cheaper yeah. given the tremendous socioeconomic burden yeah. Yeah. and the number of subjects who would actually be in need of such a treatment. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's, that's what we have to hope. And of course, weight loss drugs are another example for a very common medical problem in the world with, with immense prices. <laughs> so, but anyway, this also has to change because those are overwhelmingly the most common diseases now in the world. And the medical community is faced with this problem and we have to do something. And, and it looks like now we are in a, in a historical period where we have new drugs treating those common diseases. And we all know we, we need drugs. I totally agree. So let's change gears a little bit. What is an information you received at UEG which might be practice changing for your clinical practice? Well, I have to say, I, I, I mentioned now this resmetirum trial, which, of course, the drug is not yet there, but this is an example. It is, it is a game changer. It will change the clinical practice. And I think there is another study for me which will have an impact maybe immediately on clinical practice. And this study was presented by colleagues from Holland, and the first author is uh, Stellinga. And this was a study performed all over um, uh, Holland, and the title is Mycophenolate Mofetil is Superior for the Induction of Remission to Acetiabrine in Newly Diagnosed Autoimmune Hepatitis, the so-called Camaro trial. Now, This is a very important topic. I mean, it's not the most common disease, but it's a daily problem in, in hepatology. I mean, we did not see a lot of studies in the past years. And acetiaprine has been a cornerstone of therapy since decades. But we know it's, 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 in, in a way, it's a good old drug, but it also has substantial side effects. So we have to stop this drug at least in one out of six to seven to eight. So it's, it's not a very safe drug in a way. So we need alter alternatives. And mycophenolate was always considered as a rescue therapy in this disease. So what have the Dutch colleagues done? They've initiated a study, a 24-week prospective randomized open-label multicenter superiority trial. So they included 70 patients, 39 received MMF, 
and 31 received acetabrine. And the primary endpoint had been biochemical remission at 24 weeks. And biochemical remission means normalization of ALD and IgG. And of course, secondary endpoint safety and tolerability. And the results for me were, well, were surprising. Positive for, for MMF because MMF achieved the primary endpoint in 55% and acetabrine in 26%. And severe adverse events were only observed in acetabrine in three cases. And also adverse events led to cessation of acetabrine more often than with MMF. So the clear message from this study is that MMF is more effective then acetabrine. Well, it's one study, but it's a controlled study. So it's the study, the type of study we want to have, we want to see. We have seen now at UEG, and I think it's fantastic that they have presented this study at UEG. And it's a game changer because I believe it's very likely that we will now start using MMF as a first choice in the treatment of autoimmune hepatitis. At least I plan to do. So I totally agree, and I think that's it's very it's really important, um, especially for the side effects you just mentioned, and also the risk of melanoma in long term astaxanthin treatment, and also the lymphoma uh, risk um, we buy with this drug. One question which comes to my mind in, in this context is that we always combine the MMF or astaxanthin treatment with steroids. And we all fear the systemic side effects and given the, say, higher incidence and prevalence of autoimmune hepatitis in females who usually don't want to gain weight, what would you, comp uh, what would you use for treatment as a steroid? Would you go for budesonid uh, or would you stay with a low dose prednisolone treatment? What are your experiences there and fears? Well, uh, I have to say in, in this study, uh, in the first month, they used corticosteroid and then they started. So this, this makes sense. It's fine. I mean, we know all over medicine that standard corticosteroid therapy is a bit more effective than budesonide whether in GI or in liver. And also it takes a bit longer for budesonide to be effective. Well, we assume it has less side effects, which is probably true. But we are always concerned with all corticosteroid therapies with long-term treatment. And uh, you mentioned, uh, it was very kind of you to mention that I, I'm active in both areas, uh, let's say IBD and liver disease. And I was always a bit surprised by the hepatologists that they are not so concerned to use corticosteroids over, let's say, one year. I mean, as an IBD person, when you say I use corticosteroids for one year, you're banished almost now in the community. So in the liver, it was, well, somewhat accepted. So I believe still it's used to do long, too much. We need more effective therapies. So I would say MMF has the chance now with this study and I would advise and I think that's the maybe the clinical uh, the clinical practice we should have that we try to shorten corticosteroid therapy as we do it in IBD for example so let's say 8 to 10 weeks and then we should try to get rid of corticosteroids so you would you would think that uh, um, you don't need a combination therapy at all and you would just use MMF 
as a single treatment or would you use budesonid in combination with MMF? I would use it for a while as a combined therapy, let's say six weeks or somewhat. And of course, future studies, I think, should do what we have done in IBD. This means I start at time point zero with corticosteroid plus MMF and try to get rid of corticosteroid after eight weeks. And then I continue with MMF because I believe that's maybe the proper approach to a patient nowadays with autoimmune hepatitis. That's an, that's a very interesting concept, and I would totally agree with you. But that is the next trial all of us have to do, yeah, or ne and then study. we need to do need to do program biopsies to see yeah. whether the biochemical remission can be monitored yeah. on histology and whether that's the way to go and um, to prevent liver transplantations yeah, yeah. in those patients. But again, I think uh, really, it, it's a, for me, it's a game changer. It's, it's new, it's interesting, it's very good data. So I think it's, I liked it very much, this contribution at UHE. Thank you so much, Herbert and Julia, both for joining us today. It's been a pleasure to hear about the latest developments in the field. And Herbert has told me in the beginning that he has three extra papers that you would like to mention at the end of the episode. So please, Herbert. Well, the, the, the extra paper, I mean, two extra papers have been discussed. And there would be one final paper, I think, uh, uh, when I have a minute, which is also very interesting. It was uh, from, uh, from Karolinska from Sweden, and they uh, investigated the perinatal characteristics and risk of non-alcoholic fatty liver disease in children, adolescents, and young adults a nationwide population-based co case control study. Now, this was a very interesting study. At the end, they could include uh, 165 subjects. By the way, individuals were matched to up to five matched general population comparators. And uh, the results were very, uh, for me, a bit surprising, but very clear because They, saw, they show a very strong association between birth weight and future development of NAFLD. So severe NAFLD was significantly more common among patients born with low birth weight, below 2,500 grams. And of course, we do not understand this at the moment, but physiologically, but it was a very convincing, convincing result. And there was also a positive association seen for individuals born small for gestational age. So I would say a very strong message from the Karolinska study with respect to this. Of course, this is very important in pediatrics, but I think also as an, as an internist, gastroenterologist, dealing with adult patients, we have to deal with this because later those patients will come to our attention. So I think this was also one of the very interesting papers in liver medicine I, 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 I have seen. Do you think we overfeed the babies because we want them to grow faster? Yeah. It could be. I mean, it's very difficult to say uh, how to explain. I mean, it could well be that certain, let's say, pathophysiological loops, lipids, lipid pathways, mitochondrial pathways, or whatever, whatever is, is activated by such a situation and changes in a way, let's say, the metabolic clock for early life. For, of course, it's only speculation what we can do now, but it's a, it's a very surprising and interesting clinical observation, I would say. That's true. And I think we will certainly need interventional trials to, to better understand and then prevent 
this yeah, development. I agree, I agree. Thank you so much to both of you. It's been a pleasure for me. And with this, I would like the episode and thank you very much for listening. And don't forget to check in on the 15th of November where Julia Meile and Juna Kahen discuss the very best the pancreas field has to offer during the 2023 UEG week. Thank you and goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye.